Welcome to our special edition of the Well-Connected podcast honoring African-Americans for Black History Month. Our topic today is understanding mental health in the African-American community. Well-Connected is a podcast for faculty, staff, residents, and fellows of UT Health Houston, brought to you by the UT Health Employee Assistance and Wellbeing Programs Office. I'm Julie Van Orden. And I'm Anna Alvarado. The goal of Well-Connected is to create opportunities for employees to connect the dots between three things, what's going on in our heads and hearts, how these thoughts and feelings affect our well-being, and where we can find resources through the university to work toward a resolution. We have two special guests today. I'd like to first introduce Deborah Parker. She is an accomplished professional registered nurse with numerous <laughs> public health and social and behavioral sciences credentials. She has been a nurse and healthcare provider for over 30 years. Deborah serves as the infection preventionist, occupational health and workers' compensation case manager at UT Health Houston's behavioral sciences campus. In addition to having a mental health clinical focus, Deborah's clinical specializations have also included orthopedics, adult and child medical surgical care, and geriatrics. And also, we have Charlene Johnson. She is a doctorate-level mental health counselor and has been a therapist for over 30 years. She serves as the Senior Assessment and Referral Specialist for the Employee Assistance and Wellbeing Programs Office at UT Health Houston. Charlene's doctoral dissertation was specific to the African-American community and their utilization of mental health resources. Welcome to the Well-Connected Podcast, Deborah and Charlene. Thank, Thank you, you Julie. for having me. It's so good yeah. to be here. It is. It's so good to have you guys here. Like I said, our topic today is understanding mental health in the African-American community. So Deborah and Charlene, you're both seasoned mental health professionals who are also African-American. Through your eyes, we believe our listeners can come to understand the experiences of trying to access mental health care as an African-American, learn about the barriers to seeking care, and perhaps learn new ways to meet the needs of the African-American community. We also hope our conversation here today will inspire and encourage and empower anyone listening to seek the services they need to get help for themselves or for a loved one who may need services. Thank you. All, all right, Charlene and Deborah, let's get this started. My first question to you both is what led you to work in the mental health field? And we can start off with you here, Deborah. Okay, thank you, Anna. Um, so for me, it actually started uh, when I um, started uh, after starting nursing school and realizing um, having some classes in uh, mental health and realizing that mental health was actually all around us. Uh, mm -hmm. Mental health issues um, growing up, you see people that say, oh, well, that's just so-and-so, that's just another, uh, the way they act. But uh, actually, they were actually mental health people who were in crisis at that time and um, needed um, some assistance. So in my journey in nursing, I've realized that uh, and in my journey, as far as nursing is concerned, I've realized that uh, I was able to help uh, people in those areas. So 
that's where I actually began my my mental health journey. Thank you for sharing that. What about you, Charlene? Could you tell us about your journey? Yes, I can. My my journey seemed to hit a little closer to home. My mom used to work at the state mental health hospital in our area. And this was back in the 60s. And she was part of the, the nursing program. And they had a program, and the times have changed now, but they had a program back then where the patients who were about to be discharged, say about a month or two before then, they had a program where they would try to acclimate them back toward being in a family environment. And so they could actually stay with some of the nursing staff. And so from time to time, we had patients staying in our home who were about to be released back to their families. Oh, and so wow. I had a mm. close-up view of mental health and the transition that people made. And it was really interesting. I was like in elementary school at the time. So these folks obviously were a lot older than me, but, and I was also the only child. So at that time, so it was, it was also nice having company at, at, at the house <laughs> besides yeah. me. So I had a close up view of what it looked like. And some of those individuals, as time went on and they went on with their lives, they would touch base with my mom every now and then to let, you know, to let her know how they were doing. And so, like I said, I got a chance to see it close up and that really sparked my interest. My dad also used to read a lot of psychology. They were young parents, so he was trying his best to be the best parent and all that. And so that helped. And so I ended up in the mental health field and not only myself, my sister ended up in the mental health field, actually being a manager at a counseling center. So my mom had a real impact and that whole mental health had a real impact on us. Wow, that's wow. fascinating. That is. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So in, in general, we know that mental health carries a stigma. I would like to ask both of you and um, whoever wants to answer first can just go. What is the perception of seeking mental health in the African-American community? Some of the barriers besides stigma could be just systemic racism. Uh, some of those uh, areas where people feel marginalized, uh, fear of further discrimination, some kind of religious discrimination sometimes, mm -hmm. even social class, uh, fear of that. Um, and also finding a provider who may be a Black American or a person of color. That can lead to... Um, marginalization and seeking help if they need help. But it's also important that uh, we allow people or let people know often in our families and friends and communities that, um, you know, mental health is something that uh, that can be helped and that there are resources out there available for those people for your um, for your need. Absolutely. And if I could add a couple things to that. Sure. I think also in the African-American community in particular, and perhaps other uh, people of color communities, keeping your business personal, you know, not sharing your, your personal business with strangers or others is a big factor. And also, if you do share your, your concerns, 
sometimes it's seen as the family is dysfunctional. So when you share your business, you're also shedding light on mm-hmm. our family um, function or our family dynamics. And so there's some shame attached to that a lot of yeah. times. And also past negative experiences, I think, is a, is a stigma as well. Some people may have tried and the experience wasn't good. And so and well, maybe the they didn't have a good fit with their therapist. And so they just kind of gave up. But those are three things that come to mind. And I'm sure there are others that may come up later, but those are three that come to my mind. Yeah, you guys talked about a lot of things there. Um, When I think about um, being private and not sharing information, um, and I, I, I do think that so many people are locked down and they don't want to because they do feel like it's a reflection on their whole family. But when I, when you talk about not wanting to share outside of that, I kind of reflect back to what you were saying, Deborah, when you're talking about, you know, the fear of additional discrimination and mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it, am I setting myself up for another opportunity to feel less than or disenfranchised or add on to my feelings of Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because, uh, you know, they, a lot of people feel that it's a, um, a sign of personal weakness. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why people don't always seek help, because, again, like you said, um, Charlene, that, uh, you know, families get involved and then, you know, is it shedding some light on my family and is the family now uh, being looked at as less than it is not mm-hmm. just that person. Yeah. Do you think it's Absolutely. a result that family mm-hmm. members who know they have somebody in their family that might need, a, a you know, mental health services, do you think they uh, are less likely to encourage them also to to seek assistance because let's see if we can handle this internally? Or is that, do you think, not really what you were saying at all? I'll say that um, when I was growing up, that was more of an issue, I thought, back then uh, than it is now because it's um, more accepted uh, now than it was in growing up. So, um, yeah, I think that nowadays people say, okay, well, there is a mental health issue here. Let's go get, seek help for it. Let's... Uh, make sure that that person gets the resources that they need if they need to get those resources. Yeah. And, and resources are more readily available sometimes for some people. Yeah. And I'd like to interject something too, because I think it's twofold. Mm -hmm. I think it's what both of you have, have really said, because I think there's some families who said, I think we can handle this among ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with the mom, basically, of that child or the caretaker of that child taking on the lion's share of caring for that person's mental illness. But I think it also comes to a point when it gets so overwhelming that they are really starting to reach out for help. And as Deborah mentioned, it's becoming more acceptable now. And not only acceptable, but I think there are more resources than when I mentioned back in the 60s or 70s even. And so it's easier for some people now to connect, especially if you have a serious mental mental illness. 
So I think it's twofold. Some families will continue to, to hang in there and try to <laughs> take care of it on their own until they can no longer do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys um, discuss a list of all these barriers, but could you tell me how the mental health profession is responding to this? Are, are we evolving in, or how are we evolving as a result of this? Well, as we um, just mentioned, things are changing and there are more resource, resources available. And I think for, for many, there is a more positive outlook towards the mental health counseling. And for multicultural issues in particular, probably back in the early 1990s, for example, the Texas Counseling Association, the American Counseling Association have started really including, and I think the APA also have started including and focusing more on multicultural issues. It's no longer just that one perspective. And I like what Dr. Kobe said in one of his books, he's a psychologist, and what he said was, and also he mentioned that a lot of the universities are just now starting to incorporate multicultural classes, whereas there was a time when that wasn't even talked about. And from his perspective, he said that the mental health field basically focused on white male middle class issues and based everything on mm-hmm. that particular perspective. And so as time has gone on, there's been, there's, they've broadened that outlook to include people of color and other issues, which is awesome. I'm glad they started that, even if they did start it back in 1993, because multicultural issues have been around <laughs> for ages. So the Since fact the beginning of time. <laughs> time, exactly, has started to incorporate and really making that a part. And I'll say one other thing quickly. I took a class at University of Houston Clear Lake, and it was a multicultural class. And I had to um, write a paper. And I was surprised to find in my research that there were actually therapists that thought it was not necessary to um, study multicultural issues, that their perspective that they had was just fine. And (laughs) that was just surprising to me. And it was surprising to my professor also, who was actually a multicultural professor. So I'm glad to see the mindset changing. And Deborah, is this something you might want to add to that? Um, no, I think you did it eloquently. <laughs> I think you gave the uh, direct uh, response to what the question was, and uh, it is definitely, um, you know, a a good point to make on the, the multicultural uh, aspect. Because again, I've uh, noticed uh, all again that uh yeah that multicultural aspect has not always been in that conversation and it has not always been uh, a seat at the table so to speak as far as that's concerned so i think now like you said it is more prevalent that people are uh are getting more into that um aspect of it when i think about that population you were talking about that counseling and therapy was centered around um, white middle-aged middle-income middle middle-class mm-hmm. males, male, mm-hmm. and and that that didn't really start to change until like 1993. And you think about folks that are trying to, I mean, you you understand what I'm saying, but mm-hmm. I just can't imagine wanting to get assistance for the the structural racism issues 
and systemic issues that I need to deal with in order to thrive in my career or in my community and not have um, that um, awareness or bury uh, uh, that foundation from which, you know, to somebody to understand me and help me through that yeah. must tremendous barrier, tremendous barrier. Yes. And I need to correct one thing, and that is the issue has always been there, but the focus on incorporating it didn't really become, I, I guess, prevalent until the 1990s with some of these, well, in the 90s, I should say, with some of these organizations. And so, I mean, I agree with you 100%, Julie. It It is kind of daunting when you know you need help and you find that there's not a fit. You know you need the counseling, but it hasn't been part of the clinician's training either, unless they did it on their own. So they're thinking when they graduate from college, you know, with their master's, get their license, that they're fully equipped. And they come to realize they're not fully equipped. And it's not that they can't help, but there's still additional aspects to the counseling process that are needed. But they weren't made aware of it. So I'm glad that in the 1990s, you know, people start saying, hey, we got to take a look at this. Yes. yes so <laughs> so you, you had talked about, you just mentioned fit. And I think for mm -hmm. me, that has been um, a struggle for me when I um, am seeking a mental health professional. Because for me, in my own little perfect world, <laughs> it's, I want to find someone that looks like me and has, you know, the same experiences that I had. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and for me and my perspective, I, sometimes it just feels really hard to have to explain myself over and over to someone about my culture and why we do certain things and why we say certain things, you know, why the elders act this, that, you know, lots of different nuances exactly. that are, that is in the culture. And so I always sometimes have in the back of my head, oh, I wish I had someone that would just truly, truly understand. So for me, that's kind of a struggle. Um, but on the other hand, though, it is also kind of nice to have someone that doesn't know my culture that well because they can be so unbiased and they ask mm -hmm. me questions that I never would have thought of or thought to ask myself that because my response would always be, well, that's just the way it is. You know, that's just mm -hmm. how we do it. So I, I see the benefits in, in both of that. Mm -hmm. um, but to both of you, I want to ask your opinion do you think, can a mental health professional who doesn't look like you truly understand you? Okay, so for, if you're asking me personally, um, I, I feel that uh, yes, a person who does not look like me mm -hmm. can also um, uh, treat me if needed or even culturally because not everybody uh, lives in a vacuum. So even mm -hmm. though they may not look like me, they might have had experiences or, you know, education or, um, you know, culturally, they might have lived in areas that 
I have grown up in. Um, so yeah, I, I, I believe that that can, can happen. So yeah, I agree with that. I think that people can treat people who, uh, who don't always look like them. And I agree with Deborah. I think it's certainly possible. And I think I may have mentioned this before, but I like to travel a lot. And so when I'm writing my bio, whether on the organization website or in one of my disclosure statements, I always include the fact that I've traveled. And I do that because years ago, I had a, a client who was married to an Asian lady and he was looking for a therapist. And he told me in the first session, the reason he selected me was because I put on my bio that I traveled a lot. And he assumed that, that I would be open to other cultures, which I am. And he felt more comfortable knowing that I had that vast experience or broader experience. And so from that point on, I realized how important it is to let people know mm-hmm. that I am open to other cultures. Mm-hmm. And when I when I see when I'm about to see a new client, depending on how much time I have beforehand, if their name is one I'm not familiar with, I will Google it so I can get the correct pronunciation of their name. And a lot of times when I do that, there's some cultural information that'll pop up. For example, if it's a travel name from Africa, it'll tell me what tribe it is. Or if it's from like China, it'll tell me what province. So then I have a little bit more information. And then I just do a quick Google search because I'm trying my best to to demonstrate that I'm not only interested in helping you, but I'm interested in learning about you. And I've taken the first step to, uh, to be able to identify with your culture and to build a rapport with that client. So I want them to be as comfortable with me as possible. Now, I don't know everything. Of course, I remain open, but even just the little things. I said to a client one time, because they told me they'd just gotten married and in the uh, Chinese culture, they use red as one of the colors. And so I said, oh, did you, um, I said, what, you wore red? And I said, and how did you wear the red? And her face just brightened up and she said, oh, you know something about the Chinese culture. And I said a little bit. I said, I'm open to learning more. But that little smile and that little crack let me know I started building that rapport and I could see she felt more comfortable. And that's what it's all about, making the client feel as comfortable with us as possible. So I agree. I think people of different cultures can help other cultures, but it's important to remember who you're working with. And it's not about you. It's about all about the client. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me just add a little bit to that. I just want to tell a personal story about myself and on that same vein, um, you know, taking care of people as a nurse, you know, you run into all kinds of Mm -hmm. cultures and, and um, races and all that stuff. And so again, on that same vein, just learning uh, in New Jersey, when I started out as a nurse, not knowing much Spanish, you know, because where I came from, I didn't know much where we uh, where we had. We didn't have many Spanish speaking people, but I took initiative when we had when I had Spanish speaking 
um, patience to just learn what the word what the word pain meant or what Mm -hmm. it was that I could go and speak to that person dolor or you know Mm -hmm. um, uh, siete sit down here or Mm -hmm. whatever it was Mm -hmm. you know pardon my uh (laughs) my pronunciation of it but just to learn those little special things that that person needed to know was uh it opened up a whole new world between me and that patient and the rapport we had with each other so they would teach me a little spanish i would Mm -hmm. teach them a little medical terminology and we go (laughs) on from there you know so and uh we ended up having i've i've over the years had wonderful experiences with patients based Mm -hmm. on that yeah absolutely absolutely We are so lucky to have both of you all. I know, our, I know, aren't we? <laughs> you two are going that. above and beyond, and I really appreciate these personal stories and the um, a look into behind the scenes of what you do for your patients and for your clients, because these are things that we don't know and we never see. And mm-hmm. um, for for someone that you know seeks mental health care, like I truly appreciate that um Charlene you had mentioned that you you would google just pronunciation it's mm-hmm. a, such a big deal to even just be able to pronounce someone's name my maiden mm, my maiden name is kind of difficult to say and so when someone hits it I'm like oh my goodness wow that's great I, yes. it makes me so happy and it's just my name right so I I truly Absolutely. truly appreciate you both for that I love that. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I contribute to that? I I wanted to say, I love that too. You all are, you know, such a standard setter, standard setters here. You mentioned earlier, Charlene, about people when they come out of school, maybe with their master's degree, and they're going to start counseling that they feel fully equipped and ready to get out there. And what you just demonstrated is that you're never fully equipped, that there's always something. And you also didn't just look at uh, what more education and uh, like certificates could I get. Certainly those are, I know both of you, and I know that you all have gone on and continued to get additional Mm -hmm. certifications and different things, but your travel experiences can also serve that way. Your experiences working in nursing and the cultures you are likely to meet in a certain area can also contribute. So everything Absolutely. contributes to remembering that we bring our whole selves as caregivers Absolutely. and care providers. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, so, I think and if fun. you don't and if you don't bring your whole self to it, then it's gonna be a job <laughs> that you feel. <laughs> it's gonna be a job. It's not gonna be something that you've enjoyed for mm. doing and wonder where all the years went. Love that. Well, I think it's fun also. I enjoy oh, there you go. You know, <laughs> love, to, love to hear cultures. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, So if you are still someone that is set on trying to find someone who looks exactly like you, Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us the best way to work through that barrier? When you're searching for, let's just say a therapist, how do you interview a therapist? Are there certain questions you can ask um, can you ask, have you taken a certain training? I think you mentioned earlier uh, multicultural training. Is that 
the, the correct title of the train. What are the specific things I can ask? Okay. First of all, I want to make it clear that therapists and psychologists don't mind answering these questions. They Thank want you. to be... And you know, nurses they want don't to. either. Thank <laughs> you. I always, I'm always very cautious of what I can ask and I can't, I can say, I cannot say um, because of the whole confidentiality, mm -hmm. confidentiality mm -hmm. thing. So go ahead. So when you're looking for a therapist, I want you to keep that in mind. They don't mind answering the questions. They want to make sure they're a good fit for you as you are looking for them to be a good fit. And so these questions are crucial. And if they aren't on their website, feel free to call them and ask them. You know, it only takes about five or 10 minutes to really chat through some of these issues. And again, they don't mind. They really don't mind answering those questions. And some of the questions could be things such as, you know, what is your experience working with people of color? What percentage of your caseload, you know, makes up people of color? You can also ask, how do you address multicultural issues with your clients? And usually with those questions will come, you know, other dialogues. But feel free, and remember, this is your time, your money, your life. You have a right to ask whatever question you want. And again, they don't mind. And because they're looking also for ways to connect with you and ways that they can help you. And so having that exchange is vitally important. And so if you don't have that question before you make your first appointment, you definitely need to have that in the first session. And they're expecting that because they want to get to know you. So don't be shy in asking those questions. You know, if you're looking for, you know, some people only only see a therapist if they're married. So they'll ask that question. You know, some want to know, especially substance abusers want to know, do you have a recovery history or do you have a drug history? So a lot of those questions are being asked anyway. So I just, and when I'm seeing people for the first time, I do, when I go through my spiel, I ask them, do you have any questions for me? And if you don't have any now, feel free to ask me at any time. Because, and I keep that door open because it's vitally important that they trust me like that I can trust them. So I hope that that helps. Yeah. Thank you. Deborah, yeah, I'm yeah. so sorry. Oh, go ahead, Julie. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think um, Charlene did a good job of answering that. I have so, nothing more to add. <laughs> I have a, when you think, when you all, so so Charlene was talking about, you know, make sure you ask those questions. I want to do a little PSA here, because uh, for the for the EAP office, which is where we're located, the Employee mm -hmm. Assistance and uh, and Wellbeing Programs Office, when you want to access our services you call the front desk and, and you talk about what you're wanting and they give you a list of providers that you can reach out to, but it can start there because they can literally say to our front desk that, you know, I'd really prefer somebody who is African-American or maybe who is uh, African-American and LBGTQ uh, plus uh, Absolutely. You can be very specific. 
they're married or they're a parent because they're parenting. You can ask those types of questions from the beginning as well. So I, 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 I do, and I'll just give us, give my And can I add something to that? Yes, yes, yes. Because I think this is vitally important. You can certainly ask for for exactly what you want. Keep in mind, you want to let us know the top three non-negotiables. Because the more um, criteria you give us, the harder it will be to find that particular one person. But if you have something that's really important to you, like the the gender even, or religious preferences, or um, ethnicity, please make sure you say, or even if you want a Spanish speaking person, you know, please let us know like your top two or three, because that'll be much easier for us to find for you. And when you're saying uh, yes. you're talking about the EAP office, when somebody yes, calls in EAP, and asks. Yes. Thank you. No. And so, right. uh, and I know so, that Deborah is going to give us a, a little PSA too, or, or something, <laughs> but I do want to give you guys the phone number real quick. 713-500-3327 for the EAP. Go, Deb. Okay. So for, for me, I just want to give a little information regarding Dunn Behavioral Sciences Center. So uh, campus, we encompass uh, Harris County Psychiatric Center and now the new Dunn Behavioral Sciences Center. So that's both of our, our schools here and um, hospitals here. And um, so it's a patient-centered program um, that's provides a breakdown of barriers and providing access to care. Uh, and so that number, if you need it, is uh, 713-500-1500. That is located, um, if you need me to give the address, I can do that. Uh, it is uh, 5615-H-Mark Crosswell, Junior Street. That's the campus, and it's Houston, Texas, 77021. Awesome. So it's a get help now. That is the... (laughs) Get help now. (laughs) Right, right. So that's the number for our... So the access to care, the helpline, and all that. So they will actually put you in touch with uh, the admissions department, and if you need uh, help, they can... um, you know, refer you to a suicide prevention or if you need inpatient care or whatever it is you need, um, they're able to give you that kind of help for inpatient care. Sounds great. Thank you yeah. all for, for sharing those resources. And we hope that our our listeners are, are feeling empowered to seek help. Um, yes. I know you all listed those phone numbers and resources. Um, my question is, how does one get started? Let's say I feel like I need some help. How do I go? Do I just pick up that phone? It's just that simple. I, I'm here. I'm not feeling well. I feel like I need the help. I don't know where to go. Is it just pick up that call, that phone? Absolutely. And it is, it is, pick up the phone, give a call, someone will answer on the other line and be able to uh, talk to you, uh, talk you through whatever it is that you need at that point in time and give you the referral sources that are needed on my end. Yeah. And for the employee assistance program, we have 
a live person that answers the phone 24 seven. And so anytime a person feels like they need to talk with someone, need some assistance, we are available at that 713-500-3327 number. For the university staff, faculty, and residents, um, they can also pick up the phone and call us. We also are advertising our, or we can find our website on Inside UT Health. And you can also go directly to our website at uteap.org. There, and you can identify some resources that we have, peruse through those, but there's also a contact sheet. So if it's a non-urgent matter, you can fill out that contact sheet and then uh, one of our staff will follow up with you. If it is an urgent matter, we do ask that you call us at that 500-3327 number. And know that all of this is confidential. Anytime you reach out to us or call us, it is definitely confidential. And we see people for a variety of issues. Um, I don't know if people remember this, but you're eligible for five free counseling sessions per issue, not per year. So anytime a new issue arises, just give us a call. Um, if you have some work life issues that you want to address, and that could be um, the 30 minute free legal, the 30 minute free financial, also your money line, all of those different services, just about anything you need for, for your daily living. We can be one-stop shopping for you to help you maintain your, reduce your stress and maintain your overall well-being. And then, of course, we have the caregiver group and the grief group. So we try, try our best to make sure we have resources that can address a wide variety of issues that our staff, faculty, and residents might face. And so we also, and this just popped into my head that I need to remember to say, and that is if you're in a tough spot during the day and you need to talk to somebody for 10 or 15 minutes, we also provide in the moment support. And so anytime you need to chat with us, just think about picking up the phone and giving us a call and we'll help you sort through what resources will be best for you. So Anne, it sounds like just picking up the phone and giving a call. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a simple. Yeah. Thank you. Just yes. simple. Yes, yes, yes. So as and we Julie, give our, you, no, well, I, I was just going to say, say you, yeah, I was going to say you answered the question I was going to ask is what if I don't know what to, where to start? I don't know. And you said, if you just want to talk for 10 minutes and kind of get some direction, yep, we can wayfind for you, point you in the right direction. So I love that. I think that's, that's really useful. So we're getting ready to wrap up. And as we close, I have two questions for both of you. Uh, what is the most important takeaway or best practice in serving the African-American community or people of color? If we're a service provider, what's the best takeaway you have that you think that our listeners need to know that are providers? One of the things I'd like to say that in life, everybody needs support at some time or another. Don't be shy and don't be afraid to reach out for help. And especially if it's with a clinician, it's going to be confidential. And so just like you take care of your car, you take care of your home, you need to take care of your mental well-being. And I saw this quote I wanted to share with you. It says, there's hope even when your brain tells you there isn't. So if you're having some concerns about whether you should or you shouldn't, 
it's always best to reach out and we're here 24 7. And, and I feel and I feel the same um, just what uh, Charlene said, but often um, in our families, friends and communities, um, as I said in the beginning, mental health conditions can be all around us. So we want to be able to know to tell the difference on what is expected behavior of that person and what might be signs of a mental illness. So that's not always an easy task. Um, that can be also misunderstood. And uh, we need to bring our life's experiences to the table uh, and have meaningful conversations about topics with our families, our, friend, our friends and our communities um, at large. Awesome. Now you may have answered this question in, in that right there, but I just wanna still make sure if there's anything that we've left unaddressed. and. Um, and it's also, what is the most important takeaway for an African-American person or another person of color who's listening if they need help? What's the most important takeaway you have for them? Now, you mentioned, did you already mention it when you said to seek seek help? And what I loved your, your phrase, um, your quote, Charlene, about it may not be what you're thinking. There's, there's hope even when your brain tells you there isn't. Yeah, I love that. Because I think that that's one of the most difficult times when you're in the midst of a crisis or you're in the midst of helping someone with a crisis. They don't understand. Their brain might not be telling mm -hmm. there's, that there's hope. Right. Um, but there's always hope. Absolutely. I believe things always get better. Yes. If I might add to that, I would say to our African-American community and people of color, don't wait. You know, if you have a concern, talk it through. You know, give us a call. We'll talk it through with you. But don't wait. Don't wait until it's just so unbearable, you know, that you're hanging by a thread. Uh, sometimes when people are in the midst of crisis also, once the crisis passes, they think, oh, phew, I don't need it now. Yes, but they actually, start to feel better, the, yeah. They, they start mm -hmm. to feel better, but that's actually the best time to come. Because Absolutely. now you're thinking clearly. Yes. You, you actually know what happened. You've got more information about what went on. And so we can help you come up with a plan to address the next crisis or the next thing that comes up. Because now your mind is clear enough. And you're settled enough to embrace the, the new steps and new changes that you need. Yes. So, yes, you're feeling better, but it doesn't mean you're out of the woods yet. And it also right. doesn't mean that other things won't come up in the future. And right. so, again, don't wait. Just give us a call. And the other thing I want to remind people, it's free. It is free. <laughs> I think we it forgot to free. say that. Yes. <laughs> it's free. The there AC you go. It's free. <laughs> F-R-E-E. And it's supported yes. by the university. The university yes. has provided the service for you because they want you to be as healthy and happy as you can be. Take yes. advantage of all the resources that the university is providing for you. And it's and confidential. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, they have a completely separate um, electronic health record system for EAP because absolutely. it's completely yes, confidential. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, thank you guys for being here today. Thank you so much for being yes. with us. We Thanks appreciate you very us. much. Now I'm going to close this out. Listeners, for information, we've already given you some of this phone number information, but listeners, for information about our EAP and well-being program services, please contact our office at 713-500-3327, and our confidential team will direct you to the faculty or staff representative who can help you. You can reach us 24-7-365 for urgent matters and during regular office hours for all other business. And it's free. Yes. You may also you may also contact Anna and me by email at wellness at uth.tmc.edu. Also important for you to know is that many of the EAP and well-being services are available for your dependents as well. Thank you all for listening and thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank Enjoyed you. it. Yes.